Sections 100 to 114 of Berkeley's Treatise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Craig Campbell. Sections 100 to 114 of A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge. Part 1 by George Berkeley. Section 100 What is it for a man to be happy, or an object good? Everyone may think he knows. But to frame an abstract idea of happiness, prescinded from all particular pleasure, or of goodness from everything that is good, this is what few can pretend to. So likewise a man may be just and virtuous, without having precise ideas of justice and virtue. The opinion that those and the like words stand for general notions, abstracted from all particular persons and actions, seems to have rendered morality very difficult, and the study thereof of small use to mankind. And in effect, the doctrine of abstraction has not a little contributed toward spoiling the most useful parts of knowledge. Section 101. The two great provinces of speculative science conversant about ideas received from sense are natural philosophy and mathematics. With regard to each of these, I shall make some observations. And first I shall say somewhat of natural philosophy. On this subject it is that the skeptics triumph. All that stock of arguments they produce to depreciate our faculties and make mankind appear ignorant and low are drawn principally from this head, namely that we are under an invincible blindness as to the true and real nature of things. This they exaggerate and love to enlarge on. We are miserably bantered, say they, by our senses and amused only with the outside and show of things. The real essence, the internal qualities and constitution of every the meanest object is hid from our view. Something there is in a drop of water, every grain of sand, which is beyond the power of human understanding to fathom or comprehend. But it is evident from what has been shown that all this complaint is groundless and that we are influenced by false principles to that degree as to mistrust our senses and think we know nothing of those things which we perfectly comprehend. Section 102 One great inducement to our pronouncing ourselves ignorant of the nature of things is the current opinion that everything includes within itself the cause of its properties, or that there is in each object an inward essence which is the source whence its discernible qualities flow, and thereon they depend. Some have pretended to account for appearances by occult qualities, but of late they are mostly resolved into mechanical causes, to wit, the figure, motion, weight, and such like qualities of insensible particles, whereas in truth there is no other agent or efficient cause than spirit. It is evident that motion, as well as all other ideas, is perfectly inert. Hence, to endeavor to explain the production of colors or sounds by figure, motion, magnitude, and the like, must needs be labor in vain, 
and accordingly we see the attempts of that kind are not at all satisfactory which may be said in general of those instances wherein one idea or quality is assigned for the cause of another i need not say how many hypotheses and speculations are left out and how much the study of nature is abridged by this doctrine section one hundred and three the great mechanical principle now in vogue is attraction that a stone falls to the earth or the sea swells towards the moon made a sum appear sufficiently explained thereby but how are we enlightened by being told this is done by attraction is it that that word signifies the manner of the tendency and that it is by mutual drawing of bodies instead of their being impelled or protruded towards each other but nothing is determined of the manner or action and it may as truly for all we know be termed impulse or protrusion as attraction again the parts of steel we see cohere firmly together and this also is accounted for by attraction but in this as in the other instances i do not perceive anything is signified besides the effect itself for as to the manner of the action whereby it is produced or the cause which produces it these are not so much as aimed at section one hundred and four indeed if we take a view of the several phenomena and compare them together we may observe some likeness and conformity between them for example in the falling of a stone to the ground in the rising of the sea towards the moon in cohesion crystallization etc there is something alike namely an union or mutual approach of bodies so that any one of these or the like phenomena may not seem strange or surprising to a man who has nicely observed and compared the effects of nature for that only is thought so which is uncommon or a thing by itself and out of the ordinary course of our observation that bodies should tend towards the centre of the earth is not thought strange because it is what we perceive every moment of our lives but that they should have a like gravitation towards the centre of the moon may seem odd and unaccountable to most men because it is discerned only in the tides but a philosopher whose thoughts take in a large compass of nature having observed a certain similitude of appearances as well in the heavens as the earth that argue innumerable bodies to have a mutual tendency towards each other which he denotes by the general name attraction whatever can be reduced to that he thinks justly accounted for thus he explains the tides by the attraction of the terrequious globe towards the moon which to him does not appear odd or anomalous but only a particular example for a general rule or law of nature section one hundred and five if therefore we consider the difference there is betwixt natural philosophers and other men with regard to their knowledge of the phenomena we shall find it consists not in an exact knowledge of the efficient cause that produces them for that could be no other than the will of a spirit, but only in a greater largeness of comprehension, whereby analogies, harmonies, and agreements are discovered in the works of nature, and the particular effects explained, that is, reduced to general rules, which rules, grounded on the analogy and uniformness observed in the production of natural effects, 
are most agreeable and sought after by the mind, for that they extend our prospect beyond what is present and near to us, and enable us to make very probable conjectures touching things that may have happened at very great distance of time and place, as well as to predict things to come, which sort of endeavor towards omniscience is much affected by the mind. Section 106. But we should proceed warily in such things, for we are apt to lay too great stress on analogies, and to the prejudice of truth, humor that eagerness of the mind, whereby it is carried to extend its knowledge into general theorems. For example, in the business of gravitation or mutual attraction, because it appears in many instances, some are straight away for pronouncing it universal and that to attract and be attracted by every other body is an essential quality inherent in all bodies whatsoever, whereas it is evident the fixed stars have no such tendency toward each other, and so far is that gravitation from being essential to bodies that in some instances a quite contrary principle seems to show itself, as in the perpendicular growth of plants and the elasticity of the air there is nothing necessary or essential in the case but it depends entirely on the will of the governing spirit who causes certain bodies to cleave together or tend towards each other according to various laws whilst he keeps others at a fixed distance and to some he gives a quite contrary tendency to fly asunder just as he sees convenient section 107 after what has been premised, I think we may lay down the following conclusions. First, it is plain philosophers amuse themselves in vain when they inquire for any natural efficient cause, distinct from a mind or spirit. Secondly, considering the whole creation is the workmanship of a wise and good agent, it should seem to become philosophers to employ their thoughts, contrary to what some hold, about the final causes of things and I confess I see no reason why pointing out the various ends to which natural things are adapted, and for which they were originally, with unspeakable wisdom, contrived, should not be thought one good way of accounting for them, and altogether worthy of philosopher. Thirdly, from what has been premised, no reason can be drawn why the history of nature should not still be studied, and observations and experiments made, which, that they are of use to mankind and enable us to draw general conclusions is not the result of any immutable habitudes or relations between things themselves, but only of God's goodness and kindness to men in the administration of the world. Fourthly, by a divergent observation of the phenomena within our view, we may discover the general laws of nature, and from them deduce the other phenomena. I do not say demonstrate, for all deductions of that kind depend on a supposition that the author of nature always operates uniformly, and in a constant observance of those rules we take for principles, which we cannot evidently know. Section 108 Those men who frame general rules from the phenomena and afterwards derive the phenomena from those rules seem to consider signs rather than causes. A man may well understand natural science without knowing their analogy, or being able to say by what rule a thing is so or so. 
and, as it is very possible to write improperly through too strict an observance of general grammar rules, so, in arguing from general laws of nature, it is not impossible we may extend the analogy too far, and by that means run into mistakes. Section 109 As in reading other books, a wise man will choose to fix his thoughts on the sense and apply it to use rather than lay them out in grammatical remarks on the language. So, in pursuing the volume of nature, it seems beneath the dignity of the mind to affect an exactness in reducing each particular phenomenon to general rules, or showing how it follows from them. We should propose to ourselves nobler views, namely, to recreate and exalt the mind with a prospect of the beauty, order, extent, and variety of natural things. Hence, by proper inferences, to enlarge our notions of the grandeur, wisdom, and beneficence of the Creator. And lastly, to make the several parts of the creation, so far as in us lies, subservient to the ends they were designed for, God's glory, and the sustenation and comfort of ourselves and fellow creatures. Section 110 The best key for the aforesaid analogy or natural science will be easily acknowledged to be a certain celebrated treatise of mechanics, in the entrance of which justly admired treatise, time, space, and motion are distinguished into absolute and relative, true and apparent, mathematical and vulgar, which distinction, as it is at large explained by the author, does suppose these qualities to have an existence without the mind, and that they are ordinarily conceived with relation to sensible things, to which nevertheless, in their own nature, they bear no relation at all. Section 111 As for time, as it is there taken in an absolute or abstracted sense, for the duration of perseverance of the existence of things, I have nothing more to add concerning it after what has already been said on that subject. For the rest, this celebrated author holds there is an absolute space, which, being unperceivable to sense, remains in itself similar and immovable, and relative space to be the measure thereof, which, being movable and defined by its situation in respect of sensible bodies, is vulgarly taken for immovable space. Place, he defines to be that part of space which is occupied by any body, and according as the space is absolute or relative, so also is the place. Absolute motion is said to be the translation of a body from absolute place to absolute place, as relative motion is from one relative place to another. And because the parts of absolute space do not fall under our senses, Instead of them, we are obliged to use their sensible measures, and so define both place and motion with respect to bodies which we regard as immovable. But it is said in philosophical matters we must abstract from our senses, since it may be that none of those bodies which seem to be quiescent are truly so, and the same thing which is moved relatively may be really at rest or likewise one of the same body may be in relative rest and motion. 
or even moved with contrary relative motions at the same time, according as its place is variously defined. All which ambiguity is to be found in the apparent motions, but not at all in the truer absolute, which should therefore be alone regarded in philosophy. And the true, as we are told, are distinguished from apparent or relative motions by the following properties. First, in true or absolute motion all parts which preserve the same position with respect of the whole partake of the motions of the whole. Secondly, the place being moved, that which is placed therein is also moved, so that a body moving in a place which is in motion doth participate the motion of its place. Thirdly, true motion is never generated or changed otherwise than by force impressed on the body itself. Fourthly, true motion is always changed by force impressed on the body moved. Fifthly, in circular motion, barely relative, there is no centrifugal force, which, nevertheless, in that which is true or absolute, is proportional to the quantity of motion. Section 112 But, notwithstanding what has been said, I must confess it does not appear to me that there can be any motion other than relative, so that to conceive motion there must be at least conceived two bodies, whereof the distance or position in regard to each other is varied. Hence, if there was one only body in being, it could not possibly be moved. This seems evident, in that the idea I have of motion doth necessarily include relation. Section 113. But, though in every motion it be necessary to conceive more bodies than one, yet it may be that one only is moved, namely, that on which the force causing the change in the distance or situation of the bodies is impressed. For, however some may define relative motion, so as to term that body moved which changes its distance from some other body, whether the force or action causing that change were impressed on it or no, yet as relative motion is that which is perceived by sense, and regarded in the ordinary affairs of life, it should seem that every man of common sense knows what it is, as well as the best philosopher. Now, I ask anyone whether, in his sense of motion as he walks along the streets, the stones he passes over may be said to move, because they change distance with his feet. To me it appears that, though motion includes a relation of one thing to another, Yet it is not necessary that each term of the relation be denominated from it. As a man may think of somewhat which does not think, so a body may be moved to or from another body which is not therefore itself in motion. Section 114 As the place happens to be variously defined, the motion which is related to it varies. A man in a ship may be said to be quiescent with relation to the sides of the vessel, and yet move with relation to the land. Or he may move eastward in respect of the one, and westward 
in respect of the other. In the common affairs of life, men never go beyond the earth to define the place of any body, and what is quiescent in respect of that is accounted absolutely to be so. But philosophers, who have a greater extent of thought and juster notions of the system of things, discover even the earth itself to be moved. In order, therefore, to fix their notions, they seem to conceive the corporeal world as finite, and the utmost unmoved walls or shell thereof to be the place whereby they estimate true motions. If we sound our own conceptions, I believe we may find all the absolute motion we can frame an idea of to be at bottom, no other than relative motion thus defined. For, as hath been observed, absolute motion, exclusive of all external relation, is incomprehensible. And to this kind of relative motion all the above mentioned properties, causes, and effects ascribed to absolute motion will, if I mistake not, be found to agree. As to what is said of the centrifugal force, that it does not at all belong to circular relative motion, I do not see how this follows from the experiment which is brought to prove it. See Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica in Scholl Definition 8. For the water in the vessel, at that time wherein it is said to have the greatest relative circular motion, hath, I think, no motion at all, as is plain from the foregoing section. End of sections 100 to 114 Recorded by Craig Campbell in Appleton, Wisconsin in 2009